Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome again to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark our little intro man, or a big intro man, I'm not quite sure how tall or small he is, Mark, who's a little bit slow there entering. So we clipped off our, uh, he's a bit slack these weeks. We, we, um, perhaps we should pay him a little bit more um, to do his little intro. Or maybe we should get somebody new because um, perhaps our listeners are getting bored with our introductions. And speaking of introductions, vetgurus.com is a place to be, place to go for our previous episodes and Markov, I'm going to jump in with a little story. <laughs> it's been been one of those weeks, I think. Um, one of those weeks. Some of the, some weeks are good, some weeks are bad, and some weeks sort of you, you just you just tread water and you trudge along. And I think that's a little bit of one of those this la, these last few days. Um, not in a bad way, just some demanding demanding cases and some demanding situations. One including a Quite emotional euthanasia of a of a well loved exotic pet, unusual pet, with um, the owner being a daughter um, who was is and still is um, severely mentally handicapped, and it was quite quite a traumatic um, time for all of us, including myself, Mark, trying to um, trying to go through the process of, of um, suggesting and, and going through. Um, the euthanasia of this pet that needed needed put into sleep and um, getting across the message to the to the owner who who absolutely adored this pet and you know breaks your heart rips your heart out these sorts of ones but in a way you sort of feel good in that in the end you've done the right thing for the animal and and um, the client seemed appreciative but um, it's draining you know um, they're the days where you sort of. Uh, at the end of the day, and um, look, I think I'm, I'm, I do. Um, I hear what you're saying, Brendan, and um, I think it is important to. Uh, I, I was lucky this morning to have a little chat on the radio with our local ABC station, and I was talking about the, you know, the topic we've discussed a number of times the, the, uh, um, the apparent. Um, shortage of veterinarians uh, in the employment market. And I did touch on the fact that it is such a gratifying profession, but it does have um, its stressful moments. And um, and I think uh, that it is very easy for, you know, one or two of those particularly emotional drain, emotionally draining events to occur. And it does, it does um, suck the juice out of you. But Brendan, I think if each of us, and you in particular, have to um, focus on the fact that um, that your energy, your emotional energy that you gave to this resulted in the best outcome for the animal and, in fact, facilitated the procedure for some, um, for, for some really special people. And, geez, I don't know that I can... Uh, um, that I can have a podcast with a, a person more important and with a role that they play that's more important. So I understand how it affects you, but geez, you're doing a good job, mate. It's it makes you appreciate what you're doing. I think, I, even though it's a, a bit of a struggle and emotionally difficult, you, you 
I tend to sit back these days and think, actually, um, I'm glad I'm doing this and uh, I was glad I was involved in that particular procedure, even though it was draining. Um, Yeah. And the other one I wanted to chat to you about, Mark, is is one of the ongoing cases that we spoke about a few uh, episodes ago or maybe more than a few episodes, and that was one of the follicular stasis bearded dragons that Ah, we briefly discussed. And I finally jumped in there, convinced them to to have the surgery done on this little girl and um, took out a fair chunk of, of follicles that were all adhered, a huge mass on one side and a fairly fairly substantial mass mass on the other side as well. So the little bitty's head, he, headed home a few days ago and it's been home post-surgery for almost a week now and touch wood, it's, it's plugging away and, you know, I don't know what your opinion about how these ones go, I think it's pretty black and white with most of them when you take them to surgery, which is the ideal treatment of choice, as, as we've both spoken about, is that I think they either do famously well and that they never look back and it's pretty obvious within that first week or two or they crash and burn and end up dying um, pretty quickly um, after that surgery. So fingers crossed it's it's hanging in there at the moment. I don't think it's out of the woods yet because it was quite debilitated, um, even though we'd had it on antibiotics for several weeks because they wanted to treat it medically. And we were partially getting there, but it still wasn't quite right. So um, I think we've done the right thing in getting in there and removing that that horrible gunge and giving it a bit of a flush of the abdomen there. So, so yeah, that's the other one I wanted to chat to you about. I was going to uh, quickly mention that we've had our first case of um, a methicillin-resistant staph sued intermedius um, in a dog. Uh, we, we routinely, you know, we do a lot of skin cases, Brendan, in dogs, and, um, and we do the right thing, you know, uh, um, smear culture, a lot of them. Um, the, I would say the vast majority of them are sensitive to the beta lactams, particularly cephalexin and uh, and uh, amoxicillin clavulanate. Um, but this is the first time we've had a dog that we've treated, however you know appropriately, how we felt appropriately, and it just was getting worse, and the poor owner who is a um an employee at the hospital um uh, they um they were getting frustrated we were getting frustrated and um and uh the culture came back as a mrsp and um and changing the antibiotic um has resulted in a significant improvement in a relatively short time so um it's excellent excellent. so what antibiotic did you go with then clindamycin was the one that we chose in this instance. Ah, excellent. And isn't it, well, I was going to say always, but it, 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 it tends to be your own pets or friends or relatives or workmates, <laughs> ones that end up being the problem cases it's, and the ones are those left field ones. That, yeah, um, isn't it always the way? Keep you on your toes, keep you on your toes. Yes, um, well, a good win there, Mark, and, and as usual, yeah. Your mind is on the ball, and you're you're um well, you're way did, ahead of me with all that sort of stuff. I mean, I know, you, it, you it, it was the culture, mate. It was we didn't think of it at all. It was like a huge surprise when the um when the uh, culture report came back. It wasn't you know we obviously it wasn't responding to the antibiotics. We were suspicious that it would be something, but um to actually get one of the legendary um MRSPs uh, that's a little bit of a surprise for us. So they're out there, folks. Keep an eye out for them. Yes, and if anybody's looking for a job, then always think about Sugarloaf Animal Hospital because 
Mark has a very good culture at his practice. So <laughs> don't forget oh, that. Um, funny shit. There you go. Yes. <laughs> um, let's move on from that. Um, Mark, you've got the first news story, haven't you? I think. Yes, I think I do. And uh, it's a story um, that, um, well, the, I mean, we're going to look at a particular aspect, but this news story um, really. Uh, um, uh, was all over the news just recently, and um, and uh, and there were so many layers and aspects to it, and uh, and it will reverberate for um, a number of well years, number of decades, probably altogether. So the story is the the uh, Notre Dame fire, and the particular aspect that tickled my fancy was that, um, unbeknownst to me, um, uh, there were three hives of bees. Um, on a secondary roof at the cathedral in Paris, um, and there was a whole section of um, of people uh, um, interested in bees who were aware that they were there and who were online paying attention to them. There's actually a Parisian urban beekeeping company um, that managed the bees in that particular instance, and they were posting drone photos on social media of the uh, hives still standing on the very damaged uh, uh, rooftop structures at Notre Dame. Um, so, um, first of all, it's excellent that uh, there are urban beekeeping uh, um, facilities, companies, and people, um, and it's a, a great um, bit of news. Every one of those um, hives is an important thing, and um, and it's excellent that those three colonies have managed to survive the devastating fires that afflicted the cathedral. Um, they added a call out to uh, Saint Ambroise, uh, the patron saint of beekeepers, um, who obviously was on his game this day, um, and uh, and. Um, Attended the hives uh, over the sacristy, you know, the sacred place. Um, (laughs) Sacristy. Thanks. And and ensured that the 60,000 bees in each hive managed to survive. And although the hives um, uh, were, you know, largely, uh, probably very largely filled with smoke, um, the bees uh, don't. Um, don't suffer that they the smoke definitely makes them less active and it's a tool that's used by apiarists to manage the bees but um it wouldn't have caused the same uh pulmonary impacts that humans and dogs and cats would suffer in the same circumstance so it looks like the bees are going to be the uh ongoing uh, monument to the the um you know the the things that uh persisted through the fire in the short term before the cathedrals had a chance to be significantly rebuilt. Yes, and I was just looking at some of those photos there, Mark, that they had from the from that article, which is an article from, well, guess what, Mother Nature Network. It had a couple of pictures of the, of the bees sort of perched on what almost looks like one of the dragons there or gargoyles that they had on there, dragons, I suppose, um, on the side, and then the apiarist there with with some smoke in the background, and I thought, yeah. "Geez, they've let him in pretty early." Um, but then you read the caption there. I think it's coming from his um, little puffer. Yeah, that's right. That was before the before the fire struck there. Um, yeah, I hope um, I hope they checked that he didn't leave his little puffer <laughs> there um, a few weeks ago. But yeah, no, a, a bit of a good news story, and yes, um, 
there's um those aerial drone shots too are, are quite interesting showing those three three hives there so good on them good on them and um perhaps i could see they'll be taking that up with some sort of marketing program won't they and they'll be they'll be flogging the which could which is good for them flogging the um, um honey as um you know, um, to help support, yeah, sacred honey. <laughs> perhaps they will, yeah. Well, my new story is perhaps not quite as uplifting, Mark, and that's about um, the huge um, African swine fever um, issue that's going on um, across um, China, especially, but it's um, headed off to a couple of other regions adjacent to China as well, Mark, and just the numbers are a bit, a bit scary um, because. Um, well, look, we're talking many, many millions of, of pigs that have been dying or at least um, quarantined or, or euthanized um, relating to this um, current outbreak there. And um, they're expecting or predicting that they'll produce 150 to 200 million fewer pigs this year because of the death mark um, for infection or culling, um, which is a pretty hefty chunk of pork, Mark, um, of the 700 million pigs supposedly slaughtered in China in 2018. That's a that's a fair bit. If there's 200 less of those, um, that's going. And, and it's already hitting the economy there um, with pork prices skyrocketing to a five-month high there, Mark. Um, I think part of the difficulty is how... How widespread it is, not just how widespread it is, but how 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 widespread all the little holdings are, and there's a lot of small farmers, um, and and perhaps some of them. There's a couple of comments in the article about them not um, being a little bit um, reluctant to to notify the authorities of potential deaths. Um, so um, it's potentially been spread a little bit um, or a lot um, from from some of these. Um, pigs that have got the disease but they're not um, quarantining or or, or, um, or culling um, in the area but yeah it's it's just phenomenal that the numbers involved um, with this sort of thing so I don't think I can say much more about it because um, yeah it's not a particularly there's nothing really uplifting about it. <laughs> there was one um, aspect to that story I found particularly well cynical to be honest with you um, that is that um uh, what was the, where's the line that um, uh, American investors in pork futures were soaring on the, the, um, yes. on the, the, on the presumption that um, American pork would be, Im, you know, imported in large amounts into China. Um, and isn't it just like those people who produce nothing, who sit in shiny offices and look to invest in futures to prey on the circumstance where several hundred million pigs die. Yes, it's yes, it's not exactly uplifting, but perhaps your next story, Mark, will um, get us out of our little doldrum. Well, we it will get us out of our little our little um, uh, uh, town turn. Um, it'll raise your spirits, Brendan. I know it will excite you no end. Um, this is an article which summarises for beginners the quick checklist of things that you need to do to begin mastering the process of identifying a bird. It's one of the most important things people have to learn in life, Brendan. 
<laughs> it can be a genuine challenge for even experienced birders. Um, and uh, particularly if you're uh, relatively new to using field guides, which, you know, have excellently painted pictures, um, it can still be hugely daunting to try and um, determine um, the species of a bird, even when it's sitting in front of you. But there is a few steps that help to make things a little bit easier. And I'm going to quickly list them. You can ask me questions as I go, Brendan. The first one is the size of the bird. The size is the first and easiest thing to recognise and it really distinguishes, you know, the class of birds, uh, the group of birds that you're going to be looking at. And so um, obviously you just want to get a feel whether it's, you know, a bit smaller than a sparrow, whether it's roughly the size of a pigeon or it's as big as a... Uh, you know, swan um, or pelican. If you can start there, that will narrow down considerably um, the number of birds that you've got to flick through to identify the species. And I think, Mark, the a lot of the what I think, although I'm a, obviously a rank amateur, the the better sort of identification books and encyclopedias for for bird um, bird watching um, often do. Um, factor them in, they do put them in that sort of category, yeah. don't they? They, they, they lump them into size first and then you sort of go, go, go down from there rather than the, the classic sort of, you know, um, just a long list of different species. And, and the next one makes as much sense rather than sort of sticking with the, you know, taxonomic um, classification, which is a little bit um, more... I don't know, difficult to navigate when you're in the field and trying to identify a bird that you've never seen before. Um, the next step is to look at its silhouette, to look at its general shape. Um, and obviously, if it's, uh, you know, that can be very uh, enlightening if it's shaped like a, a, uh, a little wren, if it's um, uh, got a long curved neck like a darter or a heron, if it's got a big beak like a duck or um, if it's got uh, the rough shape of an owl, all these things will narrow down which section of the field guide you should head towards. Then you can have a look at its general behaviour. Um, so some birds will, you know, perch at a particular time of the day and just sit there. Others will be frantically foraging and running around. And what they're doing, what they're eating, um, that can help considerably as well. So is the bird... Um, uh, in a flock or is it foraging on its own? Is it close to cover or is it wandering out in the open? Is it a canopy bird jumping around? That's one of my troublesome ones, Brendan, the the uh, the, the birds that get up in the canopy like the pardalotes and the thornbills, they can be really difficult to identify. Um, and what it's eating, you obviously, um, uh, you know, can get good clues if you've got a insectivorous, a, a seed-eating bird, or um, that can narrow down the ones that you need to look at very clearly. Absolutely, and we certainly use that for related related teaching, don't we? For for, for people who have a have a unknown bird in the clinic that they want to possibly give it an emergency food it, it's it's having a bit of a think about what sort of shape is this bird what sort of beak does it have does it look like it's 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 designed to break open seeds does it have a have a tongue that looks like it eats um, nectar um, and then you relate 
that back to the emergency feed and I think it's getting back to basics with that. Um, so, yes, number three was general behaviour. What do you do if it's dead though, Mark? It doesn't really tell you much, does it? <laughs> well, you can, you can get much more specific uh, information about the other. Uh, Pick it up and you measure it. That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, now, number four. Number four is um, habitat and range. And on many of the online identification and there's a number of Facebook bird identification pages, um, and um, and it is their their catch cry is please tell us where this bird is because you can significantly narrow down and there are birds that um, that do occur out of their normal range of course, um, but at a given time of year in a given habitat within a particular range that can narrow down the type of bird you're looking at very very much and so um, uh, just noting where you are and looking at that location my phone app has that i the most common one i use i've got three phone apps for my bird id but the most common one i use actually allows you to set allows the phone to search where you are and set the location in the app so you're only looking at the birds that are in that vicinity and finally um the the thing that people look at it most frequently and when people come ask me often about a bird the first thing they talk about which is probably the last one that's most important um is its color and field marks and um so people will often come up and go oh i saw a green parrot um and what do you think it would be um and those things that information the descriptive information about the color and the um patterns of the feathers um they are helpful for identification um but they're often like highly variable and they may depend on um, the time of year the species uh, many species have uh, beautiful breeding plumages uh, the birds I was looking at on the weekend the superb fairy wrens here in Australia are metallic blue almost fluorescent in breeding color but then they uh, um, develop a, a you know they lose those feathers and develop an eclipse plumage in the winter where they're uh, much less um, showy, and so the time of year and the uh, the pattern of feathers is uh, useful, but probably not as much as you would think. And that's led to um, a very important birding term, which um, I wish everyone to uh, take a pencil and write down right now, and that is the uh, um, LBJ a note that goes into my book very, very frequently, and it stands for Little Brown Jobby. Brendan, I see a lot of little brown jobbies in the the uh, canopy, <laughs> and um, and uh, uh, I'm only now becoming much um, slightly improved at identifying which type of bird those little brown jobbies are. LBG. Now, I expect you'll be writing down a lot of that uh, th those <laughs> those little jobbies. I don't want to be careful about what I say with this. Um, on the 4th of May, Mark, the Global Big Day. Have you heard about that? Um, I, the, it's the Global Big Bird Account. The um, Last year, or last May, more than 30,000 people took to the fields and forests around the world, noting more than 7,000 species in a single day, the Global Big Day. And I'll put a link out to that. Um, for, this is for bird um, bird watching. It's um, The link site is e bird.org and um, I got onto that because I was clicking through a couple of the links of that article mark that you that you were just reading through and one one of them 
And I haven't seen this site before. Have you seen the Cornell Lab of Ornithology? Yes. Um, it's fantastic. Awesome. Um, and I'm, I'm just um, browsing through that. And that has a link to the Global Big Day, which is coming up very soon, the 4th of May. Look, can I just um, a quick shout out about um, the Global Big Day yes. and eBird. Um, I, for us Australians here, I attended a lecture a couple of weeks ago, um, which was... Um, in particular, looking at uh, oh, now the, 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 I'm getting old and forgetful. But um, one of the birds that travels from Australia to breed in Japan, um, and uh, and um, comes back to Australia to uh, forage each summer. Um, citizen science scientists doing bird surveys down on the, particularly on uh, the southern part of Australia, have made considerable contributions to um, the knowledge about those birds and. Um, and uh, and so those uh, citizen science events where uh, people can uh, get out and do the bird watching, they're not um, they're not uh, uh, you know they're real useful um, events, and the people the information that's collected makes a huge difference to the birds involved. So um, I, I just um, encourage everyone to log on and, and if they can get out and do a little bit of constructive counting, get amongst it. Yes, and the eBird app is, well, it's free, yes. isn't it, Mark? The eBird app um, for Google or Android. So it's um, it's um, it's a good one. And I think they've got listed, just clicking through their site again, they've got over um, um, 200 million records um, um, as, as far as sightings across the world. So it's a, a great database and it's a, it's a good thing, Mark. It is a good thing. So, yes, that was a much more uplifting article than the one I had, Mark, but uh, <laughs> my final one's a, a little bit in between. It's, um, it's a, bit of a, a bit of an old one. It's, back, it's, it's a report back from 2017, Mark, about just a bit of a summary of uh, a couple of surveys, or at least one big survey anyway, about exotic or unusual pets in Australia. Um, and it was just um, based on the Animal Medicines Australia 2016 survey where um, they found two-thirds of Australians' households have pets and not surprisingly dogs and cats were the most popular. Aquarium fish were, were ranked third, somewhere in the middle, around about 12%, and reptiles and, and small mammals less than 5% mark and uh, the article sort of went on to chat about the well the bit of a, a mess with the legislation I think um, regarding the states and territories here in Australia and, and the mismatch between states and territories with the keeping of um, unusual pets um, which as you know we, we sort of have to deal with um, well, probably not daily, but certainly monthly, Mark, with people who want to um, move um, to our region or move up north or, or east or, or even south to Tasmania and um, trying to give them the correct advice about whether or not they can keep their pet in um, in a different um, legislative area of Australia. So, yeah, um, I'll put a bit of a link out to it. It's pretty full of facts, but um, I'm not going to go through most of them there, and it does to have a little shout out about responsible care for unusual pets and um, um, mentions the, the difficulty and the problem with with um, um, illegal illegal unusual pets and um, smuggling of pets as well. So, yeah, that's all I really want to say about the article and I'll, I'll link to it at vetgurus.com. 
if anybody wants to to have a little look, little book little look at some of the more details, or maybe even a big look at some <laughs> of the details um, from that. So about exotic pets in Australia. Um, and as you know, and, and some of our listeners, or probably a fair number of our listeners, will not realise um, recently there was unusual pet insurance introduced here in Australia um, where where clients can now insure their small mammals and reptiles and some birds. Having said that, I'd be very curious to know, Mark, whether you have many clients who have taken up that insurance. So off the top of my head, I don't know anybody who has in our clinic, but perhaps they're there. I just don't, don't go out of my way to ask them. I think we've only, I'm pretty sure we've only had one at this stage. And, um, and I, I do think, uh, it is a little bit difficult to get the, um, we're always a bit cautious about promoting, um, insurance overly. It's always good to spread the knowledge so people know with the, the, uh, advisory that, um, we're not recommending it, but, uh, it's good information for people to have. Um, but, um, but yeah, we definitely have at least one. And I, I think as time goes on, um, because, as we've talked about on this podcast a number of times, the passion people have for these animals um, is just like, you know, it's it's unbelievable. And uh, if there's a facility, I think that they realise they can um, uh, provide the very gold standard care to their animals um, uh, and worry less about the cost, I think that they'll, you know, well, um, they'll take it up uh relatively easily i think so uh, while it might be a slow beginning i think it will be an important thing for both the pet owners and veterinary practices that deal with these animals into the future brendan i think it's an important step regardless of what what any individual's thoughts are on the the actual coverage and and as you correctly pointed out we 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 well, in Australia anyway, we cannot provide any specific advice because it's regarded as financial advice um, if we recommend a particular insurance to our clients. But we can certainly point out that those products are available um, to them. But And in the past, we we didn't have it. So I think that's a, it's a great positive, Mark, um, without a doubt. So I'm sure they'll, it'll evolve over time with the actual policies and, and what's... Um, what it covers and what it doesn't cover um, as, as the numbers of the animals go through. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so that's the, the other thing I wanted to mention. Well, let's jump into our, our main topic, Mark, um, because we're already, as usual, um, running a little bit over our, Budgeted our, time. Our, very t- our very tight schedule that we always adhere to. And this week we are talking about something that we get a lot of questions on, Um in my clinic, and I'm sure you do in your clinic, both from vets and clients, and um, and and nursing um, technical staff, but also um, to our podcast as well. And that's reptile mites, um, and and dealing with the, the reptile mite in um, in a pet reptile. So, do you want to kick it off, Mark, and, and talk a little bit about generally what is this reptile mite? For sure, Brendan. I'm very keen to have that discussion. Um, and like you, it is a uh, um, a topic that um, sort of goes in fits and starts. We often have um, like a whole series of cases and then we might not uh, see it for a couple of months. Um, and uh, and certainly uh, uh, there are times when it's very 
it's often the case that people will bring their snakes into us, snakes in particular, into us, um, and uh, and they'll be aware there's a problem and they're asking for help in figuring out how to control it. But there's often it's often a thing that we find just on routine examination. So the one we're talking about, and I'm having a real pronunciation um, trouble uh, podcast. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not really working really well, but. Ophionysis nutritious is the um, snake mite um, and uh, it's uh, worldwide distribution. Um, It's a common uh, uh, parasite, external parasite of um, captive snakes. It does occur in free-ranging reptiles. Um, There's no confirmed reports of snake might in free-ranging reptiles in Australia, though there are a couple of anecdotal reports, but um, there are populations around the world, uh, wild populations that are affected by um, snake mite, but it's mainly a problem of captive animals. It has been implicated in the in the snakes. It causes um, just it's a. I often liken it to fleas, Brendan. Um, they cause a dermatitis. They cause irritation. The snakes behave like they're itchy. Um, they, in extreme cases, uh, with heavy infestations and particularly with small snakes, they can cause uh, uh, blood loss, anemia, um, and certainly the mites have been implicated in the transmission of um, particular, particularly pathogenic bacteria and some of the viral diseases. So it's not an in significant factor in the keeping of snakes in captivity. Yes, and especially with our concern with the ever-increasing number of viral um, diseases that we're seeing, especially in the snakes of our reptile friends. Um, So it it, it is a big concern, even though an individual may not um, be obviously unwell with it. Um, Although I have seen a few, Mark, that have been significantly anemic, um, from um, the reptile mite infection um, or infestation. So, um, yes, I think it's a good analogy comparing it to to a flea, a flea infestation in a dog or a cat. Um, and I think if you take that the next step, it's often, often, not always, an indicator of um, bit of a bit of a warning bell that perhaps the husbandry of that um, that collection or that um, that owner um, may not be quite up to scratch so to speak, Mark, um, with them. And um, we'll talk about scratching in a sec when we talk about um, clinical signs with them. So um, you did touch on particular species, and I think um, we need to sort of elucidate that a little bit more and talk a bit about some of the species that we commonly so see which, it which in. which species do you see it in? Well, I've got, I'm going to post a, a picture of the reptile mite in... In a bit of dragon for the cover picture at vetgurus.com, Mark, because I do see a few in beardies, even though um, years ago I didn't see many in beardies and I thought it wouldn't be a common species, but we, we certainly see um, a large number of them in, in the pythons um, species. And and I often quiz some of the students that come through our practice with them and say, hey, um, why, why do you think we would see or more likely see reptile mite in this particular python species and not in in this other particular python species or or reptile species snake species and um 
my hint to them is um, think about two things with it. Think about the actual anatomy of that snake um, that I present them with a photo of or, or, or show them in a consult if we're seeing it and also um, the environment that that animal um, lives in, um, perhaps in the wild or, or in captivity um, because there's, there's, the, the reptile mite's a blood-sucking parasite um, and it needs and it likes to hide. So if we have a have a snake that has what I call really tightly adhered scales, Mark, that, that you can't sort of put a fingernail underneath one of the scales and lift up and you haven't got a nice little spot for those mites to hide in, then... I think there's a pretty high chance that that species will struggle um, to have a have a large infestation of, of the reptile mite on it. So I, I think a lot of it has to deal with, you know, is it a good environment for that snake, snake for that reptile mite to live on or in um, or on in between um, the little crevices in that reptile? Um, that was a very poor <laughs> description there, very rambling description there, Mark. And you just you just left me. I was loving it. I was loving it. There's some, but it, it's it, there are some very interesting questions you've um, you've uh, you've inspired me to ask you. Um, the the I do I I think after having listened to you, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, and I, apart from having, I, headache, I would yes. <laughs> I would um I think that you know that if we pick two species as examples, um, two common species that I see in practice, we'd think about the Morelia pythons the the carpet pythons and they have labial pits they have the chunky head with folds around the back and um and the uh um you know the the spaces around the eye they're arboreal snakes and so um, they have no particular urgent need to be really super smooth and so their scales are um you know they're a bit um, flexible to enable them to climb up and around the trees and they do have all those spaces you were talking about and they definitely are the you know the ones that we see heavy infestations on and yet the um, fossorial terrestrial snakes like the Aspidites species the black-headed python or the woma they fit that uh, description you were making in that um, confusing diatribe um, where where they're because they're ground dwelling snakes they have a very smooth, um, very tightly connected series of scales. They have no uh, labial pits, the heat-sensing uh, pits. Um, their eye, uh, the, 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 the space between their eye and the adjacent, adjacent scales is not as deeply divoted. And so they are, they can definitely get the mites, not a doubt in the world, but they will, um, they'll definitely, uh, uh, in my experience, not see as heavy infestations, all other things being equal. Yes, and very well put there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm explaining a clinical examination to a, to a vet or a, or a technician nurse who is, who is unfamiliar with, with examining snakes, I do really stress to them that, that there's three those three or three or four spots that I I concentrate on to say, look, you need to look in these areas in case it has low numbers of the reptile mite, and um, the the spots there are that sort of periocular region or the ocular region, like you mentioned. Um, and the way I the way I usually examine 
that that snake is is get something like a knitting needle, something a blunt, you know, end of a a pen um, lid, something like that. Um, if you don't have a, a knitting needle, which we do have in our practice, several of them, we use them for all sorts of things, um, and and move that just underneath the orbit, um, the orbital bone there, um, uh, just just in between where the, the spectacle ends um, and, and you often pick off a few of the mites there. So we go in that one spot. The other spot there is those um, labial pits, if it's a reptile that has those labial pits. Um, the, th- the next one would be the gula fold, the little fold there in the midline of the ventral like chin the there. Um, gula fold. Yep, and and the last one is yeah, lifting up a few of the scales as well. But especially if you're concentrating in that head area and you go for those three areas, I find very often that if there's relatively no low numbers of mites that you may you may otherwise miss them, um, and and paying particular attention with a an, an examination with, with well, it should be an, part of the examination with any any snake that comes into the clinic um, to see if it's got any of the signs of, of low numbers of mites there. So, so the yes. other thing about that physical examination, and you've uh, hit the nail on the head, those locations um, using some, uh, you know, whether it's a knitting needle, that's the first time I've heard that, but something um, to provide uh, just a little bit of um, additional access lift um, and separate the uh, the um, spectacular scale from the surrounding periocular scales so you've got a better view. Magnification is another good one. And the mites themselves, once they've fed, um, they're a nice relatively dark, almost black colour with full of um, digested blood. Um, but the other thing on physical exam uh, that uh, is always good to look out for <clears throat> is uh, the mite droppings, Brendan. Um, and um, and what colour might they be? They would be fairly <laughs> light there, Mark. They're often very, very um, whitish, almost yes. like a dandruffy look on some of some of the patients. And funnily, you should ask that because I've just posted that picture of the a close up of an eye of a bearded dragon um, for the vetgurus.com website, and it has a fair number of the reptile mites around the sort of ocular area and also that sprinkling of the dandruff-looking um, white material um, around the rest of the head. So head over to vetgurus.com to have a look at a, a classic um, a classic picture of that. So, yes, um, it's it's flakes of sort of dandruff or, or light Dusting, dusting you know, Tiny um, salt yeah. sort of like, it's like someone sprinkled salt. Yeah, or, or, or depending on how, how vigorous or not you are with, with dusting your icing um, on your cakes, oh, Mark, yes. on your little cup. Cakes um, when you're making those after you've used um, after you've done a bit of darning with your knitting needle, um, that's what it looks like. So yeah, um, other so, than seeing them, well, you know, are they, are they uh, yeah, are they itchy, Mark? Um, well, are they pruritic? Um, than do they seeing them? Are there other signs that you look for um, when you see them? <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> and are yes. they itchy? Um, this is a very very good question because um, uh, obviously. Um, a snake has no limbs. And so if they are itchy, how would you know, Brendan? Well, they're going to try and rub, aren't they? So we we look for several things. It, it may be obviously an agitated snake. So instead of doing its usual um, 
coiling or, or, or moving around the enclosure like it it normally does. It seems to be a bit more agitated or on the move more than more than usual. The classic one that, that people often report is that the, it will try and soak off those um, those mites and it will sit in the water bowl. So that's often a dead giveaway that, that perhaps this reptile has mites that it's sitting in the water bowl to try and get those mites to float off um, and the other one is just rubbing against things so if it's constantly rubbing where it never used to rub at all um, as part of its supposed normal behavior then um, yeah it can't scratch itself because it doesn't have any limbs so it's going to try and rub the other thing that um that sort of fits in with all those very very well explained, concise and punchy description of the uh, the behaviors is that um Many of the snakes that have uh, dermatitis associated with uh, mites will shed, like, at inappropriate times. They might have two or three quick ones, um, and um, and I, that I don't know that I can easily definitively explain that. I don't think it's a direct um, consequence of the, you know, a direct reaction to the mites, um, but I do think that they, um, uh, uh, I do think that they. Probably it's that interaction between general metabolism, thyroid hormone, all the things that go to create a uh, an ectysis, a shedding episode, they are influenced by the presence of those external parasites. And so you'll often see disectysis in these reptiles. Yeah, I think I think they are, Mark. And if it, if those mites have been there for a while, then then perhaps there is a there is a general process going on there where it's uh, affecting the the integument there of that animal and it does then go into a, a shedding cycle that it would otherwise not go into that that early um so and then it ends up being a disectized an abnormal shedding process because it is trying to it's trying to repair um that skin and it, and it goes through a, a um, continuous shed or it's trying to trying to repair the the damage that's been done because as we mentioned at the start these are blood sucking parasites so they latch on there and then they're they're sucking the blood there and then gorging themselves um, and, and then um, sitting back and um, enjoying that uh, enjoying that process. So how do we go about treating them up? Let's jump on to, you know, we, we've diagnosed um, we've diagnosed a reptile, whether it's a snake or a, or a, um, a lizard with it, um, and perhaps occasionally, and um, we, we may see some of the terrestrial um, chelonians with it. Mark, do you see many... Um, Many chelonians, many many um, tortoises or, or no, we, turtles. Well, we don't see with uh, many land-based um, tortoises. We're mainly looking at um, turtles, and I can't say that our aquatic turtles um, uh, suffer from it significantly. I could imagine there are some turtles that do get uh, maybe in the winter restricted to. Uh, a uh, terrestrial environment in captivity, and I could imagine some of those coming down with it. I certainly keep an eye out for it, but I can't tell you I've actually ever seen a case, even though it's a, uh, um, you know, it's recorded. So, so that's a, a thing just to keep uh, an eye out. Mainly squamates, but uh, the Chelonians uh, have also been recorded as carrying the parasite. So, how do we get rid of these? Pesky little parasite. Well, Brandon, I revert to my um, original analogy that it's a lot like <clears throat> the external parasites on dogs like fleas, that um, you, in general principles, are required to um, treat 
both the affected animal and its environment. These mites will get off and survive quite well off the reptile for some considerable time. Um, and so, and they travel quite a way. I think I was reading somewhere that um, there have been records records of them migrating uh, nearly 30 feet, 10 metres um, during uh, um, the time that they get off an animal um, and sit down to reproduce. So not only must you clean um, treat the affected animal, but you have to clean and treat the environment, and in many instances, the whole reptile room, if that's the way the the facility is run. Yes, and that's th- what did you say? Ten thirty meters, meters, thirty feet, ten meters. That's almost as far as you migrate when you go out to the pub uh, uh, um, for not, dinner, Mark. And it's not if I. It's usually just to the toilet and back again, yes. Um, and you do he- tend to head off to the toilet when, when um, the <laughs> bill that. comes as well, when the cheque comes. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that happens. Yes, yeah, so, yes, I, I think your summary, um, we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit deeper. Yeah, that is, is treating the animal, um, treating the enclosure um, most definitely and treating for long enough, isn't it, Mark, because those little eggs that they produce are quite resistant um, regardless of what we will subsequently talk about with the parasiticides that we use um, or recommend um, and there's several that can be used that that you need to treat for long enough and I, I think a lot of people make the mistake in that they they treat a couple of times with with whatever parasiticide that they 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 select and they may knock over 90, 95% of those those mites on that reptile, but um, then they stop and several weeks or several months later, they're back to square one. So so what, what, are, the, what are the most basic parasiticides that people tend to suggest? To um, use? Well, I think the first thing I'd say, Brendan, before we talk about the ones that we do use, um, is to quickly just touch on um, some that have had a lot of use, but um, just you just need to be very careful with. And so the typical um, insecticides, things like pyrethrins, um, the OPs um, and uh, related chemicals, those, uh, particularly in thin-skinned juvenile animals, those treatments, in my experience, have a little bit of a potential for toxicity if you spray them onto the animal. Um, and so we generally are sticking towards the um, avamectin class, so we'll use ivermectin or moxidectin, um, and uh, and definitely um, the active ingredient in frontline is very effective and uh, relatively safe. So um, that's the on the animal treatment. I also want to mention that even though we use those uh, relatively safe insecticides, um, you do have to you have to be very careful, and particularly those. Uh, very young animals that are very debilitated, um, that are quite anemic, um, that they, there's often times where I don't uh, treat those with insecticides at all and I depend on separating them from the collection um, and treating them with um, sometimes something as simple as a surfactant of some sort because the adult mites are easily drowned um, and this begets the Many people who look online will see stories of people spraying their snakes with um, uh, one of the the uh, uh, vegetable oils that can be purchased in a spray can, um, and it is effective at uh, at drowning a significant proportion of the 
the mites. It makes the animals very greasy and, and difficult to look after, and it's certainly not my first choice. But in um, significantly debilitated animals, those surfactants will kill large numbers of the mite and buy us some time to, um, to you know, support the baby snake or whichever animal it is and, and get it to the point where we can definitively use one of the on-animal insecticides. <laughs> yes, I think I put. I can't remember what I asked you. <laughs> well, I'll. Well, well, okay. No. Well, no. Let me summarise. <laughs> let me summarise. Um, um, yes, I, I think the, tr- the 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 important thing is there that we 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 select the patient carefully um, when we are going to treat them. That we we don't treat. I tend to say the clients don't treat their. Um, reptile when it's shedding um, because during that shed um, phase there that the skin is very permeable so regardless of which insecticide you may be using um, it may be absorbed and become um, become even, toxic even to them um, so I usually yes absolutely absolutely um, start off slow um, and what I mean by that is um, initially start with only and this is the, the recommendations that 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 I I, um, say to my clients, and you may have something different, Marco, we start off with one or two minutes of of applying it um, on on the actual patient um, and we do it, um, we recommend it once a week um, and then um, the second week, for instance, they might leave it on for five minutes or so. I always, regardless of which... um, um, product is used. I, I always tell the client to remove the reptile from the enclosure when they're treating it. Why? Because if you put the insecticide on and you put the reptile back in the enclosure, it's a reptile enclosure, so it's it's nice and hot and warm, and that um, insecticide or, or chemical can vaporise, and we may end up with an inhalation toxicity. So I, I usually say don't don't put them back in. Um, Treat it while it's outside the um, enclosure. Um, leave it on for the appropriate length of length of time, which may be a couple of minutes initially, or up to several minutes, or ten minutes or so. Um, once we realise it's used to it, um, and then wipe it off um, or wash it off. Um, so that's that's what I usually recommend. And I know that people have different recommendations for it, but I'm, I'm I've been quite happy with you recommending that technique and that that sort of process for. I don't know, probably 20 years, Mark, and as long as clients follow it religiously and we do give them a pretty detailed handout about um, when to use it and how to use it and, and, and making sure that they wash it off um, before they put it back in the enclosure, that um, regardless of which product we suggest, um, that I don't recall any any um, any toxicities if, if it's used correctly. And vice versa, if, if people are using them incorrectly, um, all of them can be can be toxic if they're there not is, used there, correctly. You're exactly right. There's no 100% safe option there. Are, and being careful is really important. Do you, um, you talked before about um, duration of treatment, Brendan. What, what, um, what recommendation, recommendation do you make to your clients in that regard? We we say I generally say um, treat for a minimum of six to eight weeks um, for for the for the um, duration um, of that length of time usually is enough um, and you know the second aspect is is not just treating that patient treating the enclosure and that's 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 a couple of extra things that they need to 
to do. Um, the obvious one there is is using the insecticide in the enclosure, but but I usually suggest they use a disinfectant like an F10 um, thoroughly in the enclosure first, um, use, using the um, insecticide while the, the reptile's out of the enclosure, um, as we were talking about with with treating the actual reptile, um, you could potentially leave the insecticide in. I, I say, look, spray it, spray it in there, leave it in there for half an hour or so, um, open up the enclosure, air it out and wash it out thoroughly um, before you put the reptile back in there. But the other key thing is making sure that we get rid of any um, cage furniture that might be harbouring those mites and the and the and the larvae and the and the, um, and the eggs. So that's getting rid of any any wooden items and, and just putting it back to almost like a bare bones hospital type enclosure. Um, getting rid of the substrate and just having a very simple substrate. The obvious one there is paper, newspaper or paper, and just changing that every day as well. So we're getting rid of all these nooks and crevices that the that the mites like to like to um, hide in Mark. Um, and um, yeah, that's sort of our general recommendation. I think um the other there's two other and they, they fit very, you know, unsurprisingly they're very similar to the things that we say to our clients um there are a couple of things that uh i always like to mention to clients that um uh they need to be a little bit careful about the discarded um uh material that there are no um current there's a couple of anecdotal reports but there actually is no uh, confidently reported um, wild populations of Australian reptiles that suffer from snake mite. Um, and so when disposing of uh, cage material, um, we do need to be uh, careful to ensure that um, it doesn't allow those mites, any that might be in that material, the substrate or the furniture, to get into the wild. So it does. It's a little bit of a nuclear option, Brendan. I think um, people really have to think about um, uh, burning those uh, those cage items rather than just sticking them in the bin, or um, they can uh, stick them in the microwave or freeze them. The those extremes of temperature are pretty good at killing the mites as well. So, um, but just. Uh, being a little bit cautious of um, tipping the stuff out in the garden, I think, is a good thing to be aware of. Yes. Well, that leads to our final our final aspect of dealing with our little reptile slash snake mites, and that's prevention. Um, and I think the, the key one there is the obvious one that, unfortunately, many many reptile owners don't follow in that if if they purchase a new reptile they should be doing several things um the obvious and important most important one is is quarantining it um for a reasonable length of time um whatever that may be and and these days especially with some of the viruses um that could be forever um in order to um, um stop any transmission but um at least at least um a couple of months or so um is what i would be suggesting and secondly um heading along to their nearest friendly reptile veterinarian um, or, or veterinarian experience with dealing with reptiles um, and um, treating them um, and getting a, getting a health check and um, getting that knitting needle out and, and looking for those mouths. Have you? Finished there, Mark. I'm sorry, my, my, um, I'm, I'm a little bit distracted here. The, the dogs, dogs are going a little bit nutty. Um, 
Patches, Patches getting a little bit restless there. She's wanting to head out. They were sitting quite nicely for most of this um, podcast. I think they're getting they're getting a little bit itchy, Mark. Um, I know. My, <laughs> they, you need to put their um their uh, um, flea control products on them, Brendan. I think that's a good thing to think about. Um, I, I agree with you entirely. I think uh, quarantine. Um, careful examination of the snakes repeatedly at the time of acquisition and during the period in quarantine. Um, I don't uh, routinely recommend um, that people um, treat four mites during that period of quarantine, um, but um, but certainly that in some collections that might be a necessary thing. Um, and just awareness, Brendan, making sure that uh, that people realise how. Um, how important it is and the potential risks to their collection um, so that they take it seriously. All good things. Absolutely. Well, great summary there, Mark. Um, I mean, I, I, I didn't talk about what parasiticides I generally recommend and um, interestingly enough, um, a little bit the opposite of what um, you commonly recommend, Mark, and I still... I still, to this day, and have for probably almost thirty years now, Mark. I, I, I do recommend one of the the pyrethrum-based um, or- washes, which or- orange medic. Recommend. Oh no, no. Um, one of the well, I'll tell you off air. It's a it's a generic brand, but it's certainly not orange medic. Um, and, and it's one used for dogs. Um, sold for sold as a flea um, a flea um, treatment for dogs and. Um, the clients dilute it down, and I've had fantastic success with it. And um, as as far as I know, not one, not one reptile death from it, if used correctly. <laughs> That's uh, impressive. So we do really stress to the oh, uh, Pat, patch is not happy with me. We're going to have to um, finish in a sec. Um, yeah, so um, that's what I recommend as, as number one. Otherwise, um, sometimes we go with an ivermectin-type spray, Mark, um, and I know you sometimes um, recommend it. I have indeed. But it's interesting, well, so. Brennan, I've just picked myself up right. off the floor because that is quite possibly the first time where we've actually, like, not done precisely the same thing. Um, I am shocked, absolutely shocked that you would you would you not be doing well. exactly the same as me. <laughs> well, on that thought, Mark, I think we'll get out of here and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.